You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with uh, Matthew Jackson, who is a professor of economics at Stanford University. Matt, welcome. Thanks, Greg. So you refer to your work, and by the way, I mentioned, I have to mention, you wrote this book here. Among other books, this is the accessible book for most people. It's called The Human Network, How Your Social Position Determines Your Power, Beliefs, and Behaviors. And it describes what you call a little bit of economic sociology. Now, I remember in grad school reading all, I'm sorry, I take that back. You describe this work as social economics. And um, I remember when I was in graduate school, I was exposed to what was called economic sociology. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this idea of a discipline of social economics and how it fits within the body of economics and, and why what economists can bring to this. Because I've talked to a lot of sociologists who are interested in network theory, and uh, it seems like they're the ones that have made a lot of the advances. And then we've got epidemiologists who have also done a lot. And I think a lot of the marketing people have piggybacked on top of what's being done in network theory. You're talking about social economics. So what does an economist bring to this? Sure. It goes in two directions. And let me start with what the social aspect brings to economics, and then we can talk about what economics brings back to analyzing social structures. So I think part of it is to put it in a historical context. So a lot of textbook economics and economic theory that was developed over centuries was really somewhat anonymous. So you looked at markets and these were these big anonymous systems where people would bring goods for sale and prices would be set and markets would clear and people would get the things they wanted. And then you know you brought in maybe some informational frictions and maybe people had some limits on their capital and so forth, but it left alone how people made decisions. And it left alone both the psychology of that and the social pressures on people. And, and those are both substantial, as we know. People don't act fully rationally. They don't have unlimited capacity for making de- calculating and making decisions and processing information. And moreover, we're embedded in our social structures, our networks. Our, you know, we listen to our friends, our acquaintances, our family. These are the people that help us make decisions. These are the people that give us information. They give us opportunities. They give us access to things. They control our norms. And if we don't have that context, we miss about 80 to 90% of what influences people's decision-making. And so bringing that social structure in makes a huge difference in understanding why people end up making what we would think of as economists as suboptimal decisions. Why, why aren't they investing in education when they should be investing in education? Why aren't they investing in healthcare? Why aren't they doing this? You know, So it's basic kinds of problems that a social structure really helps to understand. And they're pervasive in economics. You know, if you look in development economics, you're trying to understand people trying to make their lives better when they're in, in extreme poverty. They're relying heavily on people around them. That's essentially their only life lifeline. And then even when you get to developed worlds, you know, if you think about the way we we interact, we're heavily influenced by social media. We're connecting to people all the time. We're being influenced by what we hear and what we see and the people around us. So that you know, it's very fundamental to economic decision making. And without that lens, we don't really understand how to design policies to get people out of poverty or to reduce inequality. You know, just shifting money around isn't the answer. It's deeper structural problems that we need to solve. And so that I think that's what social brings to economics. What do economists bring to sociology? One of it is is these contexts. So we have lots of contexts. And we also have contexts that go beyond just personal decision-making. We have firms making decisions. We have countries making decisions. We have trade policies. We have wars. You know, there's lots of things that go on that involve network structures. And also, we tend to think about things from a more individualistic perspective. And so understanding these individual actors and how their decisions are influenced by their positions and networks is something that, that economists are very good at and can help explore it. And I think 
you know, nowadays, you know, these old silos of economics and sociology and some, you know, artificial. It's we're social scientists. We're we're looking with data. We're trying to understand how humans behave. There's a whole series of questions. Some more economic in nature. Some more sociological or political in nature. And so there's it's a pretty wide open landscape these days. Yeah, I see. I see a lot of what you're doing as sort of an extension of what we used to call information economics, right? So a lot of what you're describing is how information gets diffused, or how beliefs get formed, and how they get formed as a function of what information they're exposed to. But what you really dig into is the when you think about sources of information, those sources of information are basically right other decision makers and how you. Are exposed to those other decision makers, and you know, I think that as economists, we often think a lot in terms of strategic disclosure of information and so forth. I think that certainly part of what you're you're describing, but really, you know, you're starting with the more basic relationships, right? Friendships and contacts that that people have with their family members and villagers, and then you kind of build up from there. So, to what extent is this sort of an extension of information economics? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. That a lot of a lot of it is that the structures in which we're embedded and the people that we're interacting with they control the information that we see. We get their viewpoints, we get their perspectives, their opinions, their norms are projected onto us, and so a lot of it is controlling that information flow. The other aspect of it is, you know, that there is some access and opportunities, so we can squeeze that into information. But for instance, if I want to get a job at a company, it's pretty hard to do that without a, having a contact there. And so, you know, having that friend who's there who can put in a word and say, "Yeah, you know, this you should really interview Matt. I know him well. I, I know what he knows. I think he'd be a good fit here." That really opens the door. Otherwise, you're just in a pool of thousands of applicants that look, you know, more or less identical in terms of resumes that have different. Boxes checked, but you don't stand out, and so you know there's information, but there's also this sort of access and opportunities that flow through our friends, and ultimately those determine a lot of our. You know, we don't really probably perceive it as much. We think, oh, I got that job because I was good and I had these credentials and I'd worked hard, but you know, I had that opportunity because I had that friend or you know that they opened that door for me, and and that makes a big difference as well. And、uh, I think for most people, think about networks. The first thing that comes to mind is probably this idea of you know weak ties versus strong ties. And I'm sure you'll, we'll get into that in a bit. But it's also the, this thing called the, the friendship paradox, right? Where all of your friends appear to be more popular than you. And I think this has come to the attention since Facebook、uh, has illustrated you know what these networks look like. You can get a glimpse into what these networks look like. But even before Facebook came along, college students, for instance, would typically overestimate how much smoking and partying was going on because there is this sort of kind of unequal distribution of kind of centrality across. Individuals within a network. What have we learned about that, and what are these different metrics kind of importance within networks that we've come to look at? Besides that very simple one of how many friends you have or how many contacts you have. Well, let, let's start with the friendship paradox that you just mentioned, and, and I think that that's a good entry point to understanding this, and then we can sort of elaborate on the other aspects. But the friendship paradox, at some level. You know any paradox you unpack it and you say, well, that's obvious. It's, it's sort of just direct. But you know the the people who have the most friends. You know if somebody has ten friends and somebody else has one friend, then that person who has ten friends has ten times the influence. They get noticed a lot more by people than the person who has fewer friends. And on average, when you look at a society, that means that these people who are very very popular are people that are. Are influencing many more people, and that means that we end up with distorted views. We we often think of our friends as as at least random draws out of our community. You know, maybe we don't think that they're representative of the world at large. We realize we're you know somewhat different communities than the full world, but we think of our friends as sort of typical people, and they're not typical. They tend to be the people who have the most friends, and those people act systematically differently. And so, as you're pointing out, in high schools, in, in middle schools, and in high schools, they tend to be the people who would be going to parties more often, are more social, would consume more alcohol. So, I think that you know, studies in middle schools that a student one one more friend is equal to about a six percent higher chance that you've tried alcohol before your teen years. You know, they smoke at a higher rate. So, 
all of those things are then going to be overrepresented in, in our perceptions because we look at our friends and we think those are typical kids, those are typical teenagers, those are, right, are typical economists, and they're not typical. They tend to be the people that have more friends. And then if we start comparing ourselves to those people, you know, that's when it starts influencing our behavior. Oh, I want to be like that, you know, like my friends. And, and so I start to, to imitate them. And, and I think, that, as you mentioned, social media have really exacerbated this. So if you're a kid nowadays... And, and you're constantly being bombarded by the photos of kids having fun and at parties and doing all kinds of things. And you think, oh, my God, you know, I'm, I've lead such a boring life compared to my friends. I'm not, you know, hanging out and doing all these things with all these cool people. And it just ends up being uh, very distortionary. And it affects our behaviors, our perceptions of our norms. What's normal behavior? Is it normal for people to be doing this? You don't see the kids sitting quietly in the library studying late at night. You see the kids you know, out having fun. And, and so for teens, that's constant. And they're being bombarded. And they're all trying to produce the most fun thing that goes viral and influences the most people. And so that basic kind of reach can be distortionary in, in a bunch of ways. Yeah, I wonder if we could manipulate this environment, make sure that people are studying in transparent cubicles and drinking in <laughs> op- <Yeah>. opaque <laughs> cubbyholes, and, and then yeah. it might counter this uh, perception. I know schools, universities have made interventions to try to disseminate more accurate information about, say, drinking behavior and so forth. Have any of these worked? Because they seem to go contrary to, the, to our subjective impressions. Yeah, no, exactly. So one of the studies was at Northern Illinois University where they were trying to reduce some of the binge drinking that was going on on campus. So, you know, kids would go out and drink themselves silly and were doing it on an alarming basis and so forth. And so they asked people, they did surveys, you know, how much do you think is going on on campus and, and actually had some measures of how much was going on on campus. And the kids were systematically overestimating it, just like we would expect from the friendship paradox. And they were trying all kinds of things like, you know, just just say no, don't do it, and so forth. And these kinds of policies were having no impact. And then they tried the simple thing of just advertising what the actual rates were and saying, look, this is the, the actual rate of how much drinking goes on on campus. And it was lower than everybody thought. And that actually brought the, you know, within a year, they had more impact from that policy than any of the policies they'd been doing until that time. And so just informing people and saying, look, the, you think that this is normal behavior. It's not actually normal behavior. It's, it's more extreme behavior. And that can bring the behavior down because then people start reacting to what is normal. So you know, sort of being aware of our own network limitations and understanding how distorted our views are can help and say, okay, look, you know, if I'm trying to measure myself up against this person, that's not an ordinary person. And and I shouldn't be judging the typical behaviors from that. And that's an example of social proof. I think you spend some time talking in the book about social proof and how, you know, we're, our beliefs about what is uh, kind of good behavior or normal behavior is one that's done kind of based on an informal survey of the people that we're connected to. And so this can be hijacked or manipulated for good or ill by distorting those perceptions, right? Right, yeah. And you know, helping those, those perceptions can really make a difference in, in eventually you know, closing those gaps towards normal behavior, you know, especially among kids who are the most attuned. And you know, we're born, we're social animals by nature, and we react to our environments and we imitate other people and we want to conform deep down we want to be liked and and those pressures on us really push us to to do what we perceive as normal behavior so you know in, in epidemiology we talk about r naught right which is the kind of natural rate of transmission of virus in an environment that's left there's no interventions you just can release some virus into the world and then there's i think we've learned so much about this in the last uh, year and a half or so and about how this number can vary based on the disease. It can be very based on kind of the the sociology of the kind of environment in which you're releasing this virus. And it can also be adjusted and controlled through different non-pharmaceutical or pharmaceutical interventions. And I think some of the same concepts are used in, in marketing when you're thinking about viral marketing and when you're trying to do some kind of behavioral intervention. But I've never heard anybody talk, use that terminology or not. In your book, you suggest that, hey, maybe we should be you know, using that kind of language when we're trying to understand the diffusion of whether it's ideas or behaviors. How can these different measures of kind of network centrality and diffusion help us understand the diffusion of ideas and behaviors? And does it make sense to borrow from epidemiology 
Yes. Yes and no. So on the one hand, I think the these kinds of basic contagion models contain really important insights. And one of these insights is just the idea that if something's going to go viral or, or expand in a society, it has to reproduce itself, meaning that, you know, it's just... It's like, and that goes back to just birth rates and population growth, right? I mean, if if each family has, if you have a family and you have fewer children than adults, then slowly you're, you're going to shrink your population. And if you have more, then it's going to grow. And if I spread information to more than just one person, then it's going to expand outwards. If I sp- spread it to just one, then it's you know just going to stay constant. And if it's on average, if I spread it to less than one, it's not going to expand. And so that basic reproduction number idea is very important in understanding. Now, when you get down into the nuances of, of information flows, then it who's best at spreading information isn't necessarily the person who just has the most connections, right? So I can you can fi- have somebody who has a lot of followers on Twitter, and that's great. They'll get a lot of information out to those followers. But if none of those followers have followers, then it just goes out one one stream and dies, right? And so it has a high reproduction number at the first step, but no, no reproduction number afterwards. And ultimately, if you want things to be going very broadly in a society, you want to make sure that it doesn't just blast out to that one first range, but you want it to go beyond that. And so you want to look for people. And we, we've studied this in information transmission and getting information out about different programs in India. And we found that looking at those second and third steps was really important. And in fact, it went out pretty much three was the right level to go out, where if you wanted to find the most central people, you could look at who is not the person who had the most friends, but the most friends and friends of friends and friends of friends of friends. And so going out that third degree, and people vary very differently, depending on where they are in a network, where they're situated. Some people might have lots of connections, but then none of those connections are people who reach out further, but having you know, it's it's not what you know, it's who you know, but it's not who you know, it's who you know who has lots of people that they know, right? So it's who they know. And so you want this sort of expansion from the people you know being well-connected, and that produces kind of iterative measures, which are turn out to be much better predictors of the spread of information than just, you know, raw counts of number of friends that people have. And so if we were trying to, for instance, intervene to prevent the dissemination of a virus, or if we're intervening to help immunity get diffused through vaccine administration, then we would like to have information about right someone's connectivity. You know, we'd like to rather than just. And I think there was a lot of discussion about finding the people who are the most popular people and vaccinating them first. Maybe even before you vaccinate the old people, you vaccinate the people who have the largest number of connections. And you're saying that that's that's a very crude approximation and it may not be the best one. If we had access to the entire network graph of people's connectivity, then we could pinpoint with some accuracy, right? The person who's most likely to have the biggest impact. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, when we're talking about diseases, that kind of information is much harder to come by because and that kind of transmission, it could be that I'm just, you know, it's who's walking around an airport close to other right. people or, you know, sitting in a school bunch next to a bunch of students. Whereas if we're talking about information flows, that's easier to track because we have a lot of social media that have people's footprints. You know, we have email footprints, we have Facebook, we have LinkedIn, we have WeChat, we have, you know, Instagram or whatever, Twitter. You, you've got all these things with footprints where you can see these these networks, you can see the people, you can see that they're well connected to people. You know, on, on Twitter, you could have tens of thousands of followers, but if you have a couple of of friends who have hundreds of thousands of followers, you can blast stuff out a lot further, you know, if things get retweeted than than having that that high number of followers. And so, you know, being followed by a couple of really good people with lots of followers is more important. And we can see that on social media. It's it's just a lot harder to track when we do personal. So the same kind of thing would would apply to diseases, right? So somebody might spread things just to a bunch of people, but if all of those people are isolated, that's not a problem. It becomes a problem when those people themselves are then interacting with others. And that's harder to trace in a disease setting than it is in an information setting. And I think you argued this was the key insight behind PageRank, right? So PageRank wasn't simply measuring the number of immediate contacts, but rather thinking carefully about the entire network of connectivity, right? 
Right. Yeah. So PageRank originally, when you know, Google was formed and when they were coming up with a search engine, I don't know if you remember those days, but I remember Alta you, Vista. You, you go, yeah, you go in those, you, you type something in and it would just, it would give you garbage in terms of you get all these rankings that, and they had nothing to do with what you were looking for. And PageRank, Brendan Page had this idea that, look, what we're going to look for is the pages that have the most connections to them from other pages that have a lot of connections to them, right? So we want to figure out what are the most important pages. And then if important pages are pointing to you, then that's probably a page that people want to visit. And so then it becomes an iterative measure, right? So you have to define the most important pages by the ones that are pointed to by important pages. And But that's a calculation you can do very well on a computer. And so they were programming up the system to do what they called back rub originally, like, you know, who's actually pointing to the person in front of them and so forth. And, and that search engine just blew away all the other ones, right? It was so much better when you went in there and you typed in what you wanted, it popped up because there's just hundreds of thousands. If you're looking, say, I don't know, I want a, a web page on, you know, computer equipment and some kind of particular computer equipment, there's going to be tens of thousands of pages that have that on there. And finding the one that actually has the stuff I want that most people are interested in is is a lot harder. And they were just so much better at doing that through that algorithm. Now, isn't, isn't there some path dependence in these kind of network configurations? You talk about the brokerage effect, right? And you talk about the godfather effect and you have this great little story about the medicis and, and the basic idea as i understand it is that once it becomes easier to find this node on the network then that node on the network will become more important and then when it's more important it is easier to find and so this is in financial markets of course this is really important i mean it's kind of a focal point equilibrium in a way that kind of perpetuates itself right Yes, definitely. And and I think, you know, you can think of it as a real driver of social inequality, right? So that the more connections you get or the more followers you get, it's easier to get additional followers and people want to follow you because they've got, you've got more followers and, and it feeds on itself. And this kind of growth is quite natural in network settings and, and something that has, you know, led to much more unequal structures in social media platforms than you find even in person. In person, it's hard to get so many friends, right? It's, you know, there's just limits on the time and ability which you can connect. As you mentioned, there are examples historically where people became important financially or politically through building connections like the Cosimo de Medici and having additional connections and then being a key, you know, the center of a star more or less where other families are all doing business through them. And you could think of that as, a, as the birth of this court of godfather where now this is a person who has lots of connections. That person can broker deals. They can broker favors. They're a person that you can go to and say, look, if, if I give you a favor, can you grant me a favor? Well, I can't grant it personally, but I've, I've, I'm connected to hundreds of other people who are willing to, and you become a, you know, a central broker, which is a very powerful position. And at that point in time, led the Medici to, to the most powerful, become the most powerful family in, in Florence and parts of Italy at that time. But more generally, you know, we see that in, in lots of contexts. Yeah, I mean, if, if we're Medici's were around today, we might refer to them as a platform business. This is how they're dealing in, I guess it's, you could talk about the liquidity of political influence because liquidity creation is all about volume of supply and demand meeting in, in the same place, having a comprehensive information about demand and supply for some asset. And so you talk a lot about financial markets and I know you've worked a bit on, on financial markets and Lehman Brothers, was in many ways like the Medici, the Medici, I mean, one of the many Medicis of the financial system back in 2008. And you talk about the interconnectedness. Now, we don't really have a window into the interconnectedness of all the players in the financial world. I remember doing some work with the um, Congressional Oversight Panel back in 2008 after the crisis. And the idea was like, wouldn't it be great if we could have, if the Federal Reserve could have a network diagram of all the interconnected balance sheets. The question of interconnectedness, does this lead to more stability or, or less stability? I like to think of it as if you're climbing on a, a mountaintop and there's there are many crevasses everywhere, you know, do you want to be tied to all the other hikers or do you want to not be tied to all the other hikers? <laughs> and it could be good or bad for you depending on the, right, right. the configuration of the landscape, right? Yeah, no, exactly. That's a that's a great analogy. And and financial networks are very fascinating for exactly that reason. So, you know, when we think about diseases, it's just this, you know, the more connected the network is, the more interactions are going on, the more it spreads and the worse off you are. 
Whereas in financial networks, you have two, at least two forces at work. One is just the more connected all these firms are to each other, the more it can lead, you know, one bank, if they default, like if, if Lehman Brothers goes bankrupt and starts stops making payments on all the promises it's made to other banks, then those banks are now exposed to big shortfalls in their portfolios. They can go bankrupt too. And in 2008, we literally were in free fall. So if the Fed and the Treasury and the Congress hadn't stepped in, it would have been disastrous. And so there were a lot of payments that weren't going to be made. And that kind of financial contagion can spread very much like a disease. But the counterpoint to that and, and part of the analogy with the, you know, the hikers is that the more people you're connected to, the less danger you have. You know, if there's just two of us and, and I'm held to one other person, that person falls, they're going to drag me with them, right? If I'm connected to like 12 other people and one person falls, they're not going to drag me down. I've, I've got all these other anchors on me and, you know, I'm, I'm much more stable. If all 12 of them fall at the same time, then I'm in trouble, right? And in 2008, part of the problem was all these banks were invested at the same time in the same assets. And so they were all going down at the same time. And then, you know, then it was all bets are off. And you've got a very connected network with lots of people who are invested in the same bad assets at the same time. And that was pretty much disastrous because it was spreading and they were all vulnerable. And a lot of them were insolvent or borderline insolvent. And so it was necessary to prop a lot of them up to make sure the whole system didn't collapse. Yeah, it seemed like it was a combination of what your colleague Ed Lazier calls popcorn or dominoes, right? Because on the one hand, interconnected balance sheets, and when one fails, then you know they have to essentially they have a liquidity problem. But they could maybe not have shared balance sheets, but be invested in similar assets, and just the the selling pressure could then affect affect everybody. So it becomes very difficult to disentangle the extent to which it's popcorn or dominoes. How do we disentangle these? I, I know that there's some experimental methods that you've used to try and tease these different ways of understanding social phenomena apart. Yeah, and uh, you can use experiments and so forth. But in the financial setting, it's a little trickier because you're basically relying on data. But now, as you mentioned, it, in 2008, as I put it, basically we were flying jets without instruments, right? We had no picture of the financial networks and yet they were being regulated and people didn't really know what was going on. Since then, central banks around the world have been much better at, at collecting financial information. And instead of stress testing one bank at a time, you're stress testing a bunch of them at a time. And so you can begin to see, look, if, if this one fails, will it drag somebody else down? What are the risks for the broader financial system? And at that point in time, you know, they let Lehman fail because they didn't really understand how important Lehman was. And they thought it would be a lesson to other banks. They didn't realize it was going to cause a complete panic and, and put a lot of other people at risk. And now knowing the network, more about the network, I think it's still far short of where you'd like to be. So there's, you know, they can see large transactions, they can see domestic stuff. We don't see a lot of international transactions. That's still a little more opaque. So each central bank, you know, like the EU sees parts in the EU, UK sees parts in the UK now, the, the US sees, you know, Mexico has its, so each bank is looking at its own chunk of the world and we're a very integrated world. It's much better than it used to be. This kind of causal question in general is really hard, right? And, and as you point out, it's really difficult for us to tell in a lot of settings, how much of this is due to just correlation and what's happening to different people at the same time. You know, if I end up going to a movie and my friend ends up going to a movie, did we do that just because we're talking to each other and we influence each other or because we both read the same reviews and, and tend to be influenced by the same advertising and so forth? And so, you know, seeing what parts are network effects and what parts are just general popcorn kinds of effects where we're all being hit by the same stimuli, that's harder to judge. And in a lot of settings, we have to rely on experiments or some kind of randomness in the world to try and unpack that. But in financial markets, right, a lot of it boils down to beliefs. And those beliefs could be true or false. You could have an asset price go to the moon, right? As we've seen in you know, the last couple months based on nothing more than rumors and innuendo. And then you can also see crises and, and collapses that are based on nothing more than rumors and, and innuendo. And, and I think in the book, you spend a lot of time talking about the crowd and wisdom of the crowd and, and when the wisdom of the crowd works and, and when it doesn't work. Collective intelligence converges around something that approximates the, the truth. And when and when it doesn't, this is something I teach, of course, on behavioral finance, and we, we spend a lot of time you know, talking about this. And I think you're describing that it often boils down to 
not just the configuration of the network, but also kind of the sequence that, you know, with which the, the information arrives. Can you talk a bit more about that and, and how can we be aware ourselves of how the information that we're being exposed to is generated? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that there's a, a bunch of limitations and, you know, in aggregating information, part of one thing that's very constraining is the fact that there's a lot of what's known as homophily to sociologists in the world. And homophily means that we tend to associate with other people who are very similar to ourselves. And that does two things. One is it means that I'm likely getting, you know, you can think of this, as you mentioned earlier, strong and weak ties. My strong ties, the people I'm really close to and have strong friendships with, tend to be very similar to myself. So they'll they'll tend to be people who are economics, economists or you know academics, and they've had similar experiences to me and so forth. So there's a lot of that which is good, which means that you know I, I can hear about the latest economics conferences through them and so forth and get information I like. But they they're going to have very similar views to me just in nature about political events and other kinds of things that are going on in the world or. And so getting a broader perspective on information requires having that network bring that information into me and in ways that are somewhat unbiased. And that's really hard if our networks are heavily biased towards people who are similar to us and are going to have similar perspectives and experiences and ways of interpreting information and access to information. And so diversifying our information is really hard to do, but it means being you know, aware of the fact that our that we live in in heavily segregated networks and trying to overcome that as much as possible. Well, maybe we can dig into this idea of homophily. And you talk a bit about the caste system in India, and you show some network diagrams that you know show segregation in American high schools and so forth. And I think there's a dark side of this, and there's also maybe a, a bright side of this, which is that these networks are clustered, right? So presumably, there when there's less connection across these clusters, there's denser connections with, within the clusters. And is there like a law of thermodynamics in terms of how many connections you can have? And does having a broader set of connections necessarily reduce the enmeshedness of the network that you belong to? I'm just thinking, you know, that there are these problems associated with, if you say you're a lower caste in India, you're not going to be exposed to information about jobs. You're not going to have these pieces of information. But then we know about the Maghribi traders and we know about these other very tight-knit groups that are able to sustain cooperation as a result of the, the clustering of connections. I think it's a useful distinction. And, and we're actually involved in a project right now where we're trying to measure social capital and, and different types of social capital. So what you know, things that can help a group or a person out in terms of their social structure. And I think you can, let's break things into sort of two different categories. And one is this sort of tight knitness that you're mentioning. And when you get into the Indian villages and so forth, you know, we'll go into a village. So we've been doing studies there for almost 15 years now and mapping out the networks and information flows and people's decisions and and microfinance and immunization and a bunch of different things. And one thing you can see is these heavily segregated networks, very tightly knit, that gives them one form of social capital, which is sort of a support network, right? And and that support network can be really important. And, you know, if I have a crisis in there, it could be, you know, somebody breaks an arm or breaks a leg and can't work for a while. That's a disaster for a household. Or they have a crop failure and, and they, they'll rely heavily on their support network. And having a tightly knit network can help them cooperate and help them share and you know that you can rely on your friends because you've got this tight-knit network. On the other hand, that also means that their information is heavily insular. And so, so you could think of, okay, that's great for support through these crisis periods. And these are people I can really rely on. These are the people that have my back. But they're not people then who can provide me with information on how could I get into the, I, you know, the Indian Institute of Technology and, and become an engineer or you know, what kinds of scholarships are available out there. How can I actually break out of the cycle of poverty? That's not information they can provide. And so you've got these two different types of social capital. One is you want your network to be broad and reaching and, and getting information. But if you make it all like that, then you've got no support network. But if you make it all support network, then, you know, you get no information in. And, and these two things are sort of moving in opposite directions. And I think in a lot of poverty settings, people become so 
reliant on each other for day-to-day things that they they have to focus all their energies on having a tight support network. Somebody can help me out when you know I've where I can't work or can you know deal with the kids because I'm working three jobs or trying to you know make a, a living and or provide the medical help that I can't get elsewhere. And so they they have to they're forced to do that. And then they don't have these connections to the outside world. And those that lack of connections means that they lack really basic information about how to succeed and how to advance and you know, as well as the time and energy to do that. I think you mentioned there was a case where microfinance institutions were brought into some of these communities. You actually saw the, the interconnectedness of the group because now, you know, it's like me. If I would never go to my neighbor and ask for some extra kerosene, I would just go to Amazon and order it. And Amazon's my connection. That's my friend, right? But we live in a, if we have insurance companies and all that, then we don't, the interconnectedness does, does go down, right? Right, right. Yeah, exactly. And and I think when you look at, at the sort of wealthier parts of the world, they don't have to rely as much on their friends and their markets and other places they can get certain things. We still rely on our friends for a lot of information and, and help in certain ways, but they're, you're freer to pick that in ways that they aren't in some of these villages. And the study you're talking about, we looked at you know what happens after a bank came in and offered loans. And Part of the hard part about it was that the the loans came in and freed up some of the people. So some of the people now have access to these loans and, and end up doing well. But then they kind of break their, you, you saw a decrease in the connectedness in these villages. And it ends up decreasing the connectedness, not only among the people who got the loans, but also among the, the groups that didn't get the loans. And there's sort of a general drop in socialization in, in those. And that's a completely uninstalled unintended side effect, right? So you're trying to help these villages out by giving, you know, injecting financial capital. And then you see this deterioration in their support groups. And it's hitting the people who didn't actually get the financial support. And some of the poorest people in the villages are get, get hurt as well. And, and we see, you know, we can actually trace their consumption over time and we see their consumption increase in variance, meaning, you know, from they're just having a tougher time riding out those shocks that they get because they've lost that support group. And so that means that, you know, if you want to do these kinds of programs, you have to be a little more holistic about it. You can't just say, okay, we're just going to bring in financial capital and it's going to help these villagers out. You need to say, okay, well, what else might happen as a result of this? And if we're changing their social fabric, we need to know why and how and try and take that into account when doing this. Right. And so when we think about interventions that can potentially break down some of these barriers, you talk about the well-known experiment where poor people were encouraged to move to wealthier neighborhoods in the United States. And this led to all sorts of changes in outcomes and simply because of location, simply because they're now being exposed to other people. I was talking to Morton Shapiro, who's the president of Northwestern University, and he was talking about how, you know, there are all these very qualified people who schools like Northwestern would like to attract. Those people are just simply unaware of the opportunities. They don't realize that there are these financial opportunities. And presumably if they were moved to a different neighborhood, that might be all it takes for them to become aware of how easy it is to advance. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And the study you were talking about, this moving to opportunity study, it was interesting too, because it was one that initially they, the government did this in the 1990s, and it was originally done through an act of Congress. And they funded the study, went through and did looked at it, and they didn't see a big change. So they moved some families from poor neighborhoods to wealthier neighborhoods and others, you know, they let stay still, but give them some subsidies and then compared what happened to the ones that moved to the ones that didn't. And they saw some changes in health and and some, you know, little bit of change in health and basic welfare measures. But then it took about a decade to start seeing the real impact because the impact was on the kids, right? So the real impact was on the kids who were like eight years old when they moved and then suddenly, when they get to college age, then you see more of them going to college. And then if you trace them 20 years later, then you can start seeing that their incomes are a lot higher than the ones who didn't move. And so it wasn't just you know the, the family directly. There wasn't as much impact on an 18-year-old who was moved. It was really the kids who moved and then grew up in that environment and had those connections to those friends and had that influence of their friends' parents saying, oh, you know, are, are you studying to go to college? Which college are you planning to go to? That's a completely different conversation than in the neighborhoods they were coming from, right? And, and so that just meant their whole childhood was different, even though their family circumstance didn't change that much. So a lot of the families didn't get new jobs or, and so forth, but their kids 
ended up changing in terms of the way that they developed. And then, you know, that's sort of a, a leaping off point for the next generation. Well, and this is really what, you know, immigration is, is all about, right? And there seems to be in America right now, probably less internal migration than there ever has been in our history. And so, you know, you'll see people who will move from, say, Central America to the United States and, and their children will very rapidly kind of climb the socioeconomic ladder. But, you know, there might be people in, say, Appalachia that, you know, aren't aren't moving. And, you know, we're doing everything we can to improve the quality of life in those neighborhoods. But, you know, in reality, the best solution might be to just kind of get everybody to move, right? Why do people just fail to appreciate that? Or is it just the stickiness of the communities is so severe? I think it's a bunch of factors, but as you mentioned. So, you know, imagine I'm poor in an area that is impoverished. So all my friends are poor, people around me, and I realize my kids are growing up in this environment and so forth. It's not easy to uproot. So first of all, it's expensive to move. And then second of all, all the contacts I have who might get me a job are in this current neighborhood. And so it's not easy for me to go somewhere else and to, you know, to integrate. And there actually have been studies about immigrants who came in. So let's compare an immigrant who moves into an area with a lot of other people who have immigrated before who are from the same background. And then another is who gets placed. So there were some random programs in the, in the U.S. where they were moving immigrants into different neighborhoods. And so you can see randomly how they were allocated. If you're put into one with has a lot of people who speak the same language, who are already there, it helps you out in the short run. So you've got the sudden support network where you can get help from them and it helps you um, settle in. But the kids didn't integrate as well into the education system and then advancing and, and earning higher levels of income when they grow up. But if they moved into an area where <clears throat> there wasn't as much of that immigrant group, the kids did better in the long run. So then the kids are, are you know, the parents don't do as well, but then the kids end up being more part of that group and it's a bit different dynamic going forward. So it's, it's tricky, right? It's not a, well, I'm wondering if we can, you know, leverage this. I mean, the homophily idea is one that is very difficult to overcome, right? It's just sort of human nature, but you know, what we think of as similar is somewhat plastic, right? So in India, the, the caste system makes the caste identification very, very, very salient and probably, you know, very difficult to, to overcome. But if, if you could come up with some kind of cross-caste commonality that would, you know, create this, this new form of homophily. So you're in the United States, right? You know, if you're a Berkeley person, right, you know, or a Stanford person, you form a common identity that, you know, transcends, you know, what part of the country you're from or what your major is or what your socioeconomic status is. You know, are there ways that we can kind of leverage homophily that will kind of bridge this divide? You know, do churches, for instance, uh, do this or, or other types of institutions? Yeah, I, I mean, I think institutions make a big difference in terms of mixing people, say, across across socioeconomic boundaries that they might not mix in other areas. Or you know, So if you work at who you work with, you tend to work with people who have similar educational backgrounds and income backgrounds and just family backgrounds. So you, it's not as easy to find places. And when we look inside high schools, so here's one prescription that I think it, you know comes out of the data pretty clearly. And this comes out of work I did with Sergio Carini and Paula Pin, where we looked inside a bunch of high schools in America from a data set called the Ad Health data set. And you can look at high schools. And let's suppose we have a high school which on paper looks very well integrated. So it's a half black and half white or a third Asian, a third white, a third black. And so you build a high school like that. You say, wow, we just integrated all these kids. They're going to be growing up together and so forth. Then you look inside the high school and the friendships are, are completely fragmented, right? So the, they tend to be highly homophilistic on those ethnic uh, lines. And what's interesting, though, is if the high school, there's sort of a critical mass of the size of the high school. If the high school is over 100 students or so, then there's big enough groups that they can all split and have friends. And you can have your 10, 15, 20 friends and all be of the same type. If you're forced into a high school that's smaller than 100, then these groups are smaller and you see more cross friendships. So there's a there's if you have a cohort system, let's say you could engineer a cohort system. Right, exactly. So, you know, take a large, you know, like organization and instead of building it into large subgroups, start subdividing it. And actually, Stanford is doing this now with its new res, you know, it's, it's got a new residential system. And a lot of colleges actually 
Universities have some sort of system where you group the students into smaller groups. And if those groups are diverse and they're small enough, then you start getting cross, you know, cross type friendships. But once you hit a certain critical mass, everything fragments and, and you start. So it means just, you know, you really have to be careful about how you engineer your large systems and putting people in proximity on small groups and having those people interact more can foster those friendships. But just putting them together in big groups, you won't see it happen. So presumably, you know, this Sunni and Shiite Iraqis, when they come to America, there's not enough Iraqis to have two different communities. So they kind of make peace with each other or, you know, I had friends in college. One was a Turk and one was Greek and they were best friends. They didn't know any other Greeks. Right, right, but that wouldn't happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, I'm wondering if, say, if a high school has a football team, does that make a difference? Are there yeah, 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 yeah. those sorts of things that, that can bring people together? Yes, definitely. So the venue makes a big difference. And I think the size of the venue in terms of who are they interacting with. Now, if the football team pulls everybody from you know a certain group, then that won't make as much of a difference. But so you need somehow a group and maybe churches are one example where the religion might cut across different economic lines or ethnic lines. But then if the churches are separated by ethnicity or by economics, if they're neighborhood churches and and those are segregated, then you won't necessarily get that cross-fertilization. So you need the combination of the group has to be drawing from multiple types or ethnicities or economic backgrounds, and then they have to be small enough to foster that interaction. And then people enjoy interacting with other people once they do it. They just don't, they, they're not necessarily forced to do it. And, and you don't seek out on your own, you don't, People don't tend to seek out that diversity and it's hard to do, right? It takes action on our own. If we're going to try and overcome those boundaries, we don't, it's just human nature not to. Well, a lot of, a lot of what we discuss in business schools is around organizational design. And, you know, there wasn't a, a lot of discussion about organizations in the book and shaping networks and designing networks or, you know, network engineering, but this is really what companies do. Companies, when they give a lot of thought to, you know, we're going to have our French consumer products division and our German automotive parts division. And when we create those divisions, we're doing it specifically because we want to foster clustered communication. And so now all the rage is about creating all these cross-functional teams. And, uh, you know, we want everybody to be communicating with everybody, but when everybody's communicating with everybody, then everybody's kind of communicating with nobody. So how do we, um, if you're engineering these connections and these networks, how much control do you have, or do people ultimately wind up resisting this type of engineering? I mean, obviously if you put someone in a cubicle right next to someone else, they're going to start talking to another, but when it comes time to eat their lunch, they may go and find the person that they, you know, identify with the most. Yeah. No, I think social engineering, if we want to talk about that, I guess, as a general phenomenon, it's hard to do, right? And it's very hard to do because of two reasons. One is that there's lots of unintended consequences. Like we mentioned, you know, that you bring in microfinance and suddenly rewiring, you know, parts of the village that you didn't intend to have any impact on. You're just trying to change the loans. And so that's one kind of thing. That, and the second is that I think there's a lot of natural forces and organic. You know, these are very endogenous systems. And you're trying to change a system that has its own dynamics. And it's not easy to, to engineer. And it's also not clear what the objectives should be in a lot of these settings. right? So if you're a firm and you, you sort of say, OK, yeah, we want all these teams to be communicating as you're pointing out, yeah, you, you know, everybody has limits on the amount of communication that they can sustain and make sense of. And you can't have just information being broadcast and you don't want to have everybody copying everybody on everything. And trying to put teams together that are too diverse can lead to lack of communication. Making them too homogenous can lead them to, to have blind spots and to miss basic things that they should be looking at. But it's there's trade-offs to what's the problem at hand, what are they trying to deal with, how should the team be structured. And I think part of the difficulty with organizations is despite our best attempts to impose structure on them, they grow organically within that, right? And people form their own relationships. And if you look at the say the you know the formal footprints of a lot of companies compared to the informal communication footprints, they can be incredibly different. 
And they can both be important in, in functioning, right? One is sort of the who has the decision and responsibility power, but then the other is where the information flow is going and who knows what and who's important in making sure that the information is getting out to the right people in the company. And I think it's one of the trickiest things to do, but it's it's not something it's not something you can let alone as a company too, right? If, if you grow a startup organically, it can be dangerous because it suddenly expands rapidly and without some forethought, it becomes this amorphous, very difficult to have this coherent decision-making and it's going to tend to self-segregate. You know, when I, started, I interviewed Michael Arena, who's at AWS, and he said that, you know, it's very, as you mentioned, it's very difficult to organize the communication channels, but it's a lot easier to move people around based on the same idea of moving someone from you know, poor neighborhood to a wealthier neighborhood, if you identify someone that is highly connected and then you move them to a different part of the organization, that's going to inevitably alter the communication flows because they're going to keep those relationships that they had and then they're going to forge new ones. And so using network analysis to identify existing patterns and then reshuffling the people might actually be easier than trying to constrain or encourage information flows through, through channels. Yeah, and, and and I think one thing that you sort of mentioned, um, it's having one key person connected can make a big difference. So a lot of innovation, and there's various measures of this, but if you want to look at where innovation often happens, it often happens at the boundaries of different parts of an organization or in sciences, it'll be people who are have their feet in, in several camps at a time and are bringing ideas together from different places. And so that kind of synergy is incredibly important in an organization. But not everybody can be sitting at the boundaries, right? And so the key thing is sort of having a few people that you put at these in these positions who you think are going to be good communicators and are people who are open-minded and are people who are willing to work across these. And finding those individuals and making those connections is probably the best way to integrate groups rather than just sort of forcing the two groups together and saying, yeah, why don't you all start communicating better? You know, we need our product division to be talking to our marketing division more. So we're just going to start copying everybody on everything. You know, that's not going to work. But if you find some people who have expertise in both and put them together with the two groups, those people can be those, you know, essential bridges in an organization that really make it function well. So one of the things that I sometimes find in books uh, like yours is that as you start getting towards the end of the book, the kind of ideas start coming faster and, and more furiously. And each one of them contains the seed of maybe a new research uh, program. And you know, I teach a course on the wine industry and you had a little mini case on Robert Parker, which I found fascinating because here you have one person that's able to have such a disproportionate impact on an entire industry because of their influence. How does that happen? Because as economists, we always tend to think in terms of you know negative feedback instead of positive feedback. And it seems like we're always continuously surprised whenever we see some kind of positive feedback at work uh, where you know someone like a Robert Parker just gets more and more powerful rather than seeing their influence diminish as it starts to expand. Now, I think, you know, one thing like that, where you have a critic, so for people who don't know Robert Parker, he was this critic in, an early, I guess it was early 1980s, he predicted a Bordeaux vintage much better than an, uh, existing critics and models and forecasts had done. And it was pretty quickly apparent that he was sort of off the charts in terms of his ability to taste and smell wines. And there are actually ways that people can measure how good your sense of smell is and so forth. And he is really off the charts. But then it, he began to, to get this following. And then the more he important he became as the central wine critic, the more people paid attention. So then it says, okay, well, if I think everybody else is looking at Robert Parker to see what the vintage is going to be, then he's going to be the guide to what I should expect the prices to be. And then he becomes, a, you know, and now whether or not I, I trust him and whether or not I believe him, if I think other people are looking at him, it becomes focal, right? And that's an economic force. That's a, a force which then says, okay, well, this is going to, he's going to become focal because we all expect him to influence the prices. And now he's going to influence the prices because we're all, you know, doing our forward contracting off of him. And he came to make an incredible difference. If, if he didn't like your wine, you know, you were, you were really in, in deep trouble. And, and winemakers started, you know, trying to change their wines to, to fit his taste. You know, they knew that he liked big, bold wines and the French wines were starting to push more towards looking like California wines. And, you know, they were attempting to make wines that would please it's like him. the LIBOR of, of wine, right? LIBOR is another yeah. example of just this thing that started small and then the whole world was piled on top of this thing. 
Exactly. It, it starts, it start, once it gets a critical following, then it becomes so focal. And in settings where we know that somebody's going to begin to influence prices and the, the forward development of an industry, we have to pay attention to that person. And that makes it feedback in a positive way. I mean, positive in quotes, right? Because now he, he can shake the industry up and down by his, you know, so it's, it's positive in some ways and negative in others. One thing that you learn from the book is that kind of everything you do has some spillovers and you do talk about externalities and in business school, we tell everybody, work on your network, do networking, build up your network, build your power and influence and expand your sources of information and so forth. But you argue that you know sometimes we can overinvest in building out our network and sometimes we underinvest in, in building out our network and that these network connections can have positive externalities or negative externalities, depending on whether we're diffusing positive insight or negative insight. So how can, if we're interested in optimally calibrating our network for both individual and for social good, what sorts of things should we be thinking about? And, you know, I, I love the example of Guangxi, right? Because Guangxi is where these managers uh, that are just spending all their time essentially working on relationships and maybe the productivity of the business suffers, but it's individually rational because if you don't do it, then your career doesn't advance. No, oh, yeah. And I think, you know, part of it just on a personal level is being aware of the kinds of things that we talked about, you know, like the friendship paradox or the homophily and the tendency of other, of, you know, our people that we were surrounded by to be getting similar views to ourselves and not having that reach that we might want in our networks. So being aware of those things as, as basic phenomena can lead us to, to seek out information more generally to question, you know, like as a network person, I tend to ask people a lot more, where did you get that information from? Rather than just, you know, taking whatever they say at face value, I, I'll ask them where, you know, where's your information from? Why do you think that? The problem of double counting and echoes and bounce backs. Yeah, all these, you know, and they're very real phenomena, right? And they're, you know, we tend to be overcounting the times that we hear something, you know, I hear it from five friends and I think it's five pieces of independent information and it's they all read the same article because they're all economist friends who read the same blogs and, you know, that that's not very useful as five pieces of independent or, or sometimes you so, or sometimes so ask, you mention so, you speculate to somebody about something and then they say back to you a couple of days later the same thing as if it's fact and then you're like oh my speculation was correct when in fact it right, just means yeah. that they listen to you right <laughs> yeah exactly right right and so you know being aware of that i think can help us a lot you know, how we optimally engineer our networks and so forth is is hard and you know even like in Cosimo de Medici's case it was partly serendipitous. He, he was marrying off, you know, children to different families and forming alliances and, and loans. And he happened to be very good at it. But it's not clear how much he was, you know, an architect of that or a, a lucky serendipity. But I think more generally, you know, we can. One thing I do a lot more than I used to is just put myself, I like to say, put myself in uncomfortable situations. So, for instance, as an economist, it's harder to go to sociology conferences, right? I, I won't know anybody there. I don't know the, I speak less of the language. It's a little more foreign. I, you know, you feel kind of lonely. You don't know who, who to talk to. So there's all these things that are, are sort of tough when you go there, but they're quite enlightening. I mean, I learn so much more than if I go to, to the marginal economics conference where I almost know once I see the title, what they're going to say in the talk, right? So it's new information and and then new relationships that are... So putting yourself out there in those situations will allow you to to form new relationships that can be quite valuable, but it's, it's hard to do. And you don't want to spend all your time you know, so there's this balance again when we go back to this sort of support network versus your information network. You want both, right? But you need some balance and it can't be all or, or nothing. And it's not easy, but I think we generally underinvest in that information network and underinvest in those outreaching ties. I remember when I would go to conferences in remote areas as a graduate student, I would go out and smoke cigarettes because I could always find a group of people who were, who were doing that. And then boom, some homophily would kick in because they'd think, oh, you're one of these people that you know, is belongs to this sect of people who, who smoke and, and do it just for that reason. And it seemed to break the ice and allow me to establish some, some connection with at least a sub subgroup, probably not a random sample, but at least a right final thought, because everyone wants self-help. And you say that network theory might even be useful when it comes to predicting the success and longevity of a romantic relationship. Now, <laughs> when you're checking out a potential uh, spouse 
spouse's uh, Facebook <laughs> profile, what should you be looking at? <laughs> oh, you know, so there's an interesting, I mean, fascinating study where people looked at friendships on Facebook and actually trying to predict who is someone else's spouse and so forth. And there's interesting things that you, you know, when you have a partner, you tend to end up with lots of friends in common because you intersect that person in different venues. But you know, I think having a richness in terms of your networks, you know, for spouses, it's it's hard. I think the world now, one thing I worry about is the fact that more and more of the people we meet are being met online and more and more people are meeting their spouses online. And what that allows you to do is go through a dating service where, you know, you're, you're asked to list a whole series of things about you and put up a profile and so forth. And then that, that exacerbates the homophily, right? So now you can find somebody who's basically your twin, which to some extent is is good, you know, you're very compatible, but on other dimensions, it's not a great thing because they don't diversify or enrich your life in ways. And, and you know, so, some of this idea of you complete me, that the idea that like people should be complementary to each other and, and fill in each other's gaps is important in any relationship. And I always fear that now that we have social media, that are that the suggestions, the friend suggestions, all the suggestions we get are Here's somebody who has the same interests and the same background. You'll really like this person. And yeah, you connect with them instantly, but they're not going to enrich your life in ways that other people, you know, they're compatible. You can have lots of fun with them, but they're not necessarily the person that completes you. And that's harder to find, right? But you also mentioned that if if they have more shared connections, then they're, they're likely to, the relationship's most, more likely to last. Now, is that compatibility or is that because the um, social pressure is, is greater uh, to uh, stay together? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it reflects the fact that they actually are willing to move into each other's friendship circles and so forth, right? And so you end up having this where you're connecting with their friends and they're connecting with your friends. And actually, one of the biggest predictors was if those friends that you have in common with them are not friends with each other, that was a good predictor of a long-lasting relationship. And that means that somehow you've managed to integrate into their friendship groups. You, they've managed to integrate into your friendship groups. It's not just one group of friends that was all the same. It was, you know, there's real sort of a balanced relationship where you're integrating into each other's groups. But it's, yeah, you know, I think network science now is entering sort of a golden age where we have so much data where we can see these footprints and we can see how people organize themselves. We can see why it matters and how it matters. And yeah, it's a fascinating time to be a scientist. Well, it's certainly a fascinating book. I recommend it, The the Human Network, and it's a really wonderful introduction to a wide range of topics in network theory. And of course, if you if you enjoy this, then you can also pick up the textbook, which is uh, widely used in economics departments around the country. Thank you, Matt. Great talking to you. Yeah, thanks so much, Greg. It's a lot of fun. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.